Let's go to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Father, we, uh, we come to your word now. Uh, we continue our worship by attending to your word about the message of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. Um, and it's a word of warning. And uh, I pray, Lord, that uh, we would take that warning to heart. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'll let Jesus introduce the topic. Let's look at Mark 9:38. We're going to be focusing on verses 43 to 48, but we'll get a running start. So beginning at verse uh, 38. Might help if I got to the right page. There we go. Jesus or John said to Jesus, "Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us." Don't stop him," said Jesus, "because there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name." who can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For whoever is not against us is for us. And whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of my name, since you belong to the Messiah, I assure you, he will never lose his reward. But whoever causes the downfall of one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and if he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes your downfall, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to give than to have two hands and go into hell, the unquenchable fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes your downfall, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell, the unquenchable fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes your downfall, gouge it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt should lose its flavor, how can you make it salty? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. The word of the Lord. The subject of today's sermon is hell. We talk about hell because Jesus talked about hell. I can't say that it's a fun topic to talk about. It's not the topic that, uh, you know, it's not the go-to topic for this preacher anyway. But um, but Jesus talked about it, and it's and it's appropriate to address the subject periodically. Many say that in the Bible, Jesus talked about hell more than anyone else in all of Scripture. And after taking a look myself, I think that's probably accurate. So what I want to do is just share with you a sample of Jesus's teaching on hell before we then unpack this passage here in nine forty three to forty eight. So I'll just flash some references up on the screen and I'll read you those references. Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the uh, to the hell of fire. Matthew eight. I tell you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus says, and you, Capernaum, city of Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until today. Matthew 13, therefore, just as the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The angels will go out. Separate the evil people from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
Matthew 22, then the king told the attendants, tie him up hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as fit for hell as you are. Verse 33, snakes, you brood of vipers, how can you escape being condemned to hell? Matthew 24, but if that wicked slave says in his heart, my master is delayed and starts to beat his fellow slaves and eats and drinks with drunkards, that servant's master will come home on a day he does not expect and at an hour he does not know. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 25, and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 25, then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Luke 8, and they begged him not to banish them to the abyss. Luke 16, one day the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried and being in torment in Hades, the rich man looked up and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. Father Abraham, he called out, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this flame. Finally, John 15, if anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire and they are burned. Jesus felt compelled to warn people about hell, and so did the apostles. While it is not a pleasant topic, it is a necessary one to address. If you woke up in the middle of the night and your house is on fire, and there are other people in your house, would you not awaken them so that they too would get out of the house? Well, what if someone's, what if someone's future is on fire? What if their eternal destiny is on fire. What about trying to wake them up? Why does the Bible talk about hell? Because it's a reality. What if someone's eternal destiny is on fire? The Bible warns these people. The Bible warns us of the reality that we're heading for. So though it's unpleasant, Jesus talks about hell. And so what I want to share to you, with you today from Mark 9, 43 to 48 is five facts uh, from Jesus' teaching in Mark 9 about hell. And the first is this, that hell is real. Hell is real, number one. Jesus clearly believes in hell. He mentions hell several times in this passage, and he warns his followers away from it. We've just surveyed several passages where he talks about hell, some in direct conversation and some uh, in parables where he illustrates the horrors of hell. Um, it would take some interpretive gymnastics to believe that Jesus didn't believe in a literal hell. He clearly believed in it. Hell is not an item of fiction. It's real. It's, it exists. The second fact is this. Hell is possible. Hell is possible. In other words, it's possible for you to end up in hell. Jesus says, if your hand causes your downfall, causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go into hell. And then he says essentially the same thing in verse 45. And again in verse 47, he's warning his followers, watch out, guard yourselves, watch out for hell. Many of the passages I read earlier are Jesus warning people against hell. 
because hell is a very possible eternal landing spot. The Bible is very clear that in the next life, there are only two possible destinations. What are they? Heaven and hell. Right. Okay, so you know your Bibles. Right. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what the Lord teaches. There are only two possible eternal destinations, heaven or hell. Nothingness is not an option. Ceasing to exist is not an option. No one ceases to exist after they die. Nothingness is not real. That's a fantasy. It's either heaven or hell. There is no door number three. And according to the Bible, while there will be many people in heaven, there will also be people in hell. And all throughout the New Testament, the apostles, and especially Jesus, are waving the warning flag. Hell is very much a live option. Hell is in your path. Take your situation seriously. Take stock of what path you're on. And your situation really has to do with your sin. Hell is in your path because of your sins. That's why Jesus warns about your hand that sins or your foot that sins or your eyes that sin. Sin is the problem. Sin is what has put you on the path to hell. Third fact is this. Hell is miserable. Hell is miserable. Jesus says it is better to cut off your hand, to cut off your foot, or to gouge out your eye than to end up in hell. Now, those, neither of those alternatives sound very good. Uh, but Jesus is saying that one is far worse than the other. In almost every reference in the scriptures, there is also an explicit or implicit reference to misery or extreme suffering. The Bible uses different images to paint a picture of that misery and suffering. We're all familiar with the image of fire that is often uh, talked about in the scriptures. And here in Mark chapter 9, verse 43, he describes hell as the unquenchable fire. There's also the image of darkness. The image of darkness. Hell is also described as outer darkness. One of the plagues, one of the ten plagues on Egypt was darkness. Uh, It was a darkness that was, the Bible says, it was felt. For three days, no one saw anyone. No one even got up to do anything. It was pitch dark blackness. Utter isolation. Complete aloneness. Sometimes there's this image of weeping and gnashing of teeth. For instance, in Matthew 22, tie him up hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 13, they will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Other images of hell and descriptions of hell include chains. Jude 6, Jude verse 6 talks about eternal chains under gloomy darkness. And there's also the idea of no rest at all. The idea of a constant conscious affliction that prevents any kind of rest. For instance, in Revelation chapter 14, verse 11, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Absolute misery. By contrast, the passage then goes on to read, here is a call for the endurance of the saints, for those who follow Christ, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. So the picture of heaven and hell are contrasted in terms of the idea of rest. 
eternal rest in heaven, no rest in hell. There is this notion among people, among some, uh, that hell is going to be a big party um, since all their friends are going to be there. Um, If by party they mean a place of incredible, unrelenting suffering without any hope of relief, then yeah, it's a party. Uh, If by party they mean not a party at all, then yeah, it's a party. Some people also make the statement that they'd rather be in hell because that's where all their friends are going to be. There is no friendship in hell. There is no joy in hell. The image of darkness that we've already talked about suggests complete isolation and aloneness from others. Further, those who end up in hell are going to be far worse versions of themselves than what they are in this life. Even as those who are walking with Christ now, when we get to heaven, we will be perfected, we'll be fully matured, we'll be far better versions of what we are uh, now in this life when we're in heaven. And the opposite is is the case with regards to those who end up in hell. That being the case, any positive qualities that allowed for friendship in this life, those in hell no longer possess those qualities. The grace of God that tinges even wicked men and women with some good qualities in this life is fully removed in hell. Hell is absolutely miserable, and I'm using that word absolutely literally. It's completely, fully miserable. There is no relief, no occasional break in the clouds, uh, no occasional ray of sunshine. In the one parable that Jesus told, the rich man suffering in the afterlife wants just a drop of water on his tongue. That's all he's asking for, a drop of water on his tongue. He wants just a second of relief, and he cannot get it. He can't get it. People sometimes refer to various experiences in this life as as going through hell. But when a person is in hell, they could only wish. They could only wish for even the worst experiences that they had in this life. They could only wish for another bad vacation where everything went wrong. They could only wish to go through another tax audit. All those experiences that seem like hell to people in this life will, will, if they can even remember it, those experiences won't seem so bad compared to being actually in the actual hell. Think about your worst day so far in this life. Don't think about it too long, but think about your worst day in this life. It's far, 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 far better than what your best life would be, what your best day would be in hell. Hell is eternal. Verse 48, Jesus describes hell as the place where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Matthew 25, in Jesus' parable, then he will also, the king in the parable, will also say to those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That popular last verse of amazing grace when we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun imagine coming to your 10,000th anniversary in hell and realizing you've only just begun some people balk at the idea of an eternal suffering 
of, an etern- of eternally paying for sin, eternally, eternal suffering for sins. It just seems, it just seems unjust. Um, but in fact, it is just. It is just. The Bible teaches that. So why do we believe that? Well, let me just state right at the beginning. The reason I believe that is because God is not unjust. Anything and everything that God does is just. Anything he does cannot be said to be unjust. So the first argument for me is pretty simple. God is perfectly just, and God condemns to eternal punishment those who refuse his generous gift of salvation. Therefore, eternal punishment is just. That's the critical argument for me. But beyond that, I think there are other factors that validate this conclusion and help us to understand how eternal punishment is just. And I want to just share with you four of those those factors, because some people wrestle with this. First of all, and this is not in itself convincing, but let's just consider life in our own era. Punishment time, even in our world, is longer than crime time. Someone kills someone and they get a life sentence. It took them less than five minutes to rob the gas station and shoot someone, and yet they get a life sentence. So the fact that someone pays much longer for their lifetime of sins, and not just one or two crimes, isn't as surprising when we consider the same kind of thing happens in our own justice system, though obviously uh, the scale isn't the same. Another consideration is this, that sins committed against greater beings are graver than the same sins committed against lesser beings. So what what would happen to you, what would happen to a man, let's just let's make it impersonal, what would happen to a man who threatens to kill his drinking buddy versus a man who threatens to kill the President of the United States? You know, what what would the consequences be? Would the consequences be graver for the person who threatened the president. You've read stories about people who say nasty things about their friends and nothing happens to them. But they say one little thing again. I'm talking about fictional stories here. They say something against their their friends and nothing happens to them. But they say one little thing against the king and they're arrested and imprisoned. Part of the extreme gravity of our sins is whom our sins are against. The almighty, eternal holy creator of all that we are, all that we see, all that we have, and everything else. He is not our next-door neighbor. He's not our cousin. He's not our friend from school. He's not even the mayor or the senator or the president. He is far, far, far beyond that. We are sinning against absolute goodness, the one who is perfect in beauty and in holiness, the creator of all, the sustainer of all. A man steals from his neighbor and he pays a fine. A man hunts in the king's forest and shoots one of the king's deer and he's clapped in irons and in prison for the rest of his life. What's the difference? The rank of the person he sins against. We commit sins against an infinite being. The punishment is infinite. John Piper says the essential thing is that degrees of blameworthiness come not from how long you offend dignity, but from how high the dignity is that you offend. Another factor to consider is that we underestimate the wickedness of sin. We underestimate the wickedness of sin. 
We downplay the significance of sin, of how grotesque it is, of how shocking it is to rebel against such a God as our God, who is perfect in majesty, perfect in goodness, perfect in glory, who is the creator of all, who is full of mercy and grace and love, always doing what is best for us, who is worthy of all honor and glory and worship. For instance, some look at the first sin, the first sin of the human race, and they say, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? They ate, Adam and Eve ate a piece of fruit uh, they weren't supposed to. What's the big deal? But that's not framing it correctly. That's not framing it correctly. What happened was is that they chose to trust the word of a creature, a lowly creature at that, over the word of the God who made them, who made the beautiful garden for them, and who blessed them with a wealth of trees and fruit at their disposal. They walked in abundance and security and joy and peace because of this God. He had shown them nothing but love. He had created them. He had provided them with all that they had. He had shown, he had poured himself out for them in countless ways. And Adam and Eve went and trusted someone else who just entered their life five minutes ago. Someone who had done nothing for them over the word of God who was their patron and sustainer. Framed in that way, I get closer to seeing how serious their sin was. And the, ten, and the problem is that we tend to frame all of our sins that poorly. All of our sins are much graver than what we realize and are also much more deserving of far greater punishment than what we think. And the final consideration, sinners in hell likely haven't stopped sinning. They haven't stopped sinning. This passage that I'm going to show you on the screen is from the last uh, chapter in the Bible. He also said, that's not it. Oh, I didn't put it in. So just listen. Okay, I'm going to read it to you. I'm not going to show it to you. I'm going to read it to you. This is from Revelation 22. He also said to me, don't seal the prophetic words of this book because the time is near. Let the unrighteous go on in unrighteousness. Let the filthy go on being made filthy. Let the righteous... Let the righteous go on in righteousness and let the holy go on being made holy. Just as the saints will live righteously, the sinners will go on living unrighteously. And this makes sense. We Christians, we were slaves to sin, as the Bible teaches. We were slaves to sin until we believed on Jesus and the Holy Spirit came into our lives. And then we're born again. We're new creations. And now we are fighting against sin in our life. And when we stand before Christ, all sin will be removed from us. No longer will we battle this sinful nature. No longer will we battle sinful attitudes and sinful thoughts and sinful actions and behaviors and so forth. We will be perfected. We will be glorified. We will be as Christ is. But that all came because of our connection with Jesus Christ. Those who don't believe on Jesus, they don't receive the Holy Spirit. They're not born again. They're not new creations. If this is the case, they are still slaves to sin, and sin is what they do. They live and eat and breathe rebellion against God. This would be true of me had I not put my faith in Christ, had the Spirit not come into my life. Sinners in hell continue sinning in hell. They will not get to hell and magically stop sinning. They will not get to hell and magically stop being ungrateful. They will not get to hell and magically stop thinking evil thoughts. Thus, the eternal punishment will continue because of their eternal sinning. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. They will not be doing that. Some of you are familiar with the website gotquestions.org. 
They write, that website writes, unsaved people do not only sin for 70, 80, 90, or 100 years, they sin for eternity. D.A. Carson writes, hell is full of people who do not want to be there, but who still do not want to bend the knee. For all eternity, they still hate God. They still despise the cross. They still nurture sin. They still hate others in, the endless, in this endless cycle of self-chosen sin, iniquity, thanklessness, idolatry, and their consequences. So these factors, for me, especially that last factor, helps, helps to understand a little bit better the fact that eternal suffering in hell is not unjust. Well, from the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 9, we have seen so far that hell is real, hell is possible, hell is miserable, hell is eternal. And one other very important fact, which I flashed up there much earlier, and you see, hell is escapable. Hell is escapable, and that's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the whole point of this warning in Mark chapter 9. Hell is terrible. You want to avoid it? Take your sins seriously. God has provided an escape from hell, one that keeps his justice intact. His son Jesus lived a perfect life and shouldered our sins on the cross, paying for our sins so that we wouldn't have to. God, the infinite divine son, paid, for our, paid the infinite price of our sins on the cross at Calvary. God would be delighted if hell were empty of all people. He would be glad if the only population there were the state were Satan and demons. Second Peter three, nine talks about the fact that he does not want anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance and be saved. But he does not violate man's free will. He has given us free will and he presents. He has paid the price for our sins. He has given his son for our sins. Jesus came and died for our sins. The gift of salvation is there, but he does not force people to take it. It was because of his great love for each one of us that he gave us a second chance and provided such a costly gift to us. The cross is the way out of hell. Why does Jesus talk about hell so much? Because it's a reality and he doesn't want people to end up there. Receiving the gift of salvation is your means of escape. It's not called salvation by accident. We're we're saved from the just penalty of our sins. Faith in Jesus is the way out. Faith is trusting Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord. It's accepting your place as God's subject and as his child. Sins have been paid for, but if someone refuses that payment, he or she will pay for their sins themselves in hell. The question is, and this is absolutely the critical question, where will you spend eternity? If I can even say it, where will you spend eternity? Where will you spend eternity? There is only one way out of hell, and only one way, and that is by entrusting your life to Jesus Christ. You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You must receive him into your life. The reality of hell should cause for us, should cause in us, gratitude. For those of you who are put your faith in Christ, for those of you who are following Christ, there should be profound gratitude in your life. You should have profound gratitude to the Lord for what he has done in saving you. Um, from the just penalty of our sins. The reality of hell is cause for also alarm and precaution that we take sin seriously in our lives and work to put it to death. And if you don't know Christ, you need to put your faith in Christ. The reality of hell is also cause for witnessing. It's cause for witnessing, for telling others about Christ that they also might be saved.
Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we thank you for your love and your goodness. The love, your love is clear all throughout the scriptures, else you wouldn't warn us about hell, or else you wouldn't provide us a way out of hell. Um, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish in hell, but have eternal life. And we thank you and praise you for that. It's my prayer, Lord, that we would be a witnessing people, that we would share the gospel, that we would share the good news of Christ with others. It's my prayer that everyone in this room would have faith in you. Pray, Lord, that you would work in each one of us. Thank you for saving us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.